Hi, I'm Ann DeLisi. Welcome to episode 30 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with blues singer, guitarist, and recording artist Joanne Shaw Taylor, who, as a girl, idolized Stevie Ray Vaughan. I spoke with her in 2020 during the COVID shutdown, and we started by talking about her move from the UK to Detroit. I do remember having a panic attack. I was about 21, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and it was the night before I left. And I just remember thinking, what am I doing? I'm going to Detroit. Isn't it like a third world country? They will have guns. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to make it with this accent. Um, but I loved it. I loved it from the get-go. I always felt... I was born in an area of the UK called the Black Country, which is known for its very industrial um, and a lot of good music. Zeppelin, for one example, Slade, one of my favourite bands. Uh, so there was a lot of similarities in that and, and Detroit. So I felt very at home here. And also Black Country's had, you know, harsh times. Coal mining industry went. And, you know, that kind of breeds in the working class, I think, kind of a, a resolve um, and a hardness. But also, you know, they understand that, you know, a good sense of humour too. Uh, so there was a lot of similarities for me. Yeah. So you got comfortable quickly here, it sounds like. Yeah, I think I felt very at home here. And particularly in America, because I just all my influences were American. You know, it's all the Texas blues guys. So, um you know, it was just, it was the natural place for me to be. I think I felt more at home here, I think, than I had in the UK, if I'm honest. Uh, let's go back to uh, when you were a kid and when you had got a connection to music. So you were classically trained, right? Yes. Not that I've remembered much of it, um, <laughs> which is obvious from my guitar playing now. Yeah, I, um, my dad played guitar, my older brother. So I just grew up with it around the house, loved it. And then when I was eight, the opportunity for lessons came up at school. I did that. Um, did it come natural to you? It did. Um, I feel bad saying that because also I don't want, you know, kids to think you don't have to work at something. You know, I did put in a lot of hours, but it was from the get go. It was something I was uh, resonated with me. And I remember the first lesson, the audition was we had to go in and they taught a bunch of kids to to kind of walk on the strings using their right hand. Um, And I went back a week later and about four of the kids had learned to do it. And I'd learned all the six songs that they'd given us and had started improvising. Um... So they gave me lessons and then I had a private lesson and then they put me in with the older group as well. And then eventually they auditioned me for the Birmingham Youth Ensemble, which I got into. So it was a natural thing, but it also, uh, it became very obvious that the better I was at guitar, the less time I had to go to school. So that was sort of quite the motivation early on. Do you think you would have gotten as good as you are now based on your natural ability to play Um if you didn't have classical training when you were younger? Uh, to be honest, I, I don't think it made any difference to me. Um, I don't remember. I can't read music now. I don't remember reading it then. I was always an ear player. You did read it then or you kind of did? I also realised early on I could just copy what the kid next to me was doing. Because um, I, I didn't, I wasn't bad at school, but I didn't start talking till I was five. Don't know why, just suddenly decided to one day. What was it like for your parents? Frustrating. <laughs> I remember going to speech therapy and I remember finally my dad took me down to London and I think spent a lot of money, money we didn't have to see me, to get me into a specialist and I would have been about four or five and I remember she held up a card that had a picture of a bus on it. She said, bus. And I remember looking at my dad and thinking, all right, bus. I was like, it's a bus. I was like, <laughs> you could talk this whole time. So, I mean, I always struggled at school a bit so it was just more of a I just knew that the guitar was for me and it was certainly the best way I knew how to express myself. So I think for me, classical didn't really make much of a difference and I think that's why I was so attracted to blues because the first time I saw it, it didn't have that discipline that classical had. Basically, all rules are off as long as you sound like you, you know, put your personality into it. So I think for me, 
it didn't make a difference, to be honest. I think as long as you love it and find something that you want to practice, it's it's going to help, you know. Well, let's talk about your first introduction to blues and hearing that music for the first time. Uh, well, it was always around the house. My dad was a blues nut and played harmonica. Oh, so that was um, always in your in your house a little bit. Okay. Yeah, but it really took... Um, I saw a Steve Ray Vaughan DVD. I think it was my 13th birthday. And I knew I'd wanted to switch to electric guitar. And my parents had said that I could and I could leave the youth ensemble. But it was just something about Stevie because I, you know, I'd heard Robert Johnson and Charlie Patton and Sunhouse and all these very scratchy albums that when you're a 12 year old girl that's been listening to the Spice Girls, they're kind of hard to digest. And that's your point of reference, you know, very polished pop. So there was something about Stevie for me that really kind of grabbed hold of me. Um, and through him, then I, you know, discovered Buddy Guy and then further back and eventually made my way to, you know, Sunhouse and those early artists but yeah I was just it was always in the house my mom was a mad soul music fan and dancer so gosh it was everywhere I guess you almost didn't have a choice it was kind of kind of in your blood almost yeah I think so I do remember my dad bringing home a guitar when I was about four and he bought one for my brother and I do remember a distinct feeling of oh so this is when it all starts so you were playing acoustic guitar Uh, when you got that electric what changed it was honestly seeing Stevie and it just was like a light bulb going off. Do you remember what it felt like to play and have your music amplified that way? And the feel of it is different. Um, it's just a different world almost, right? Yeah, I think for me it was it was less about that and just I was just hell-bent on that is absolutely how good I have to be and what I want to do and that is who I'm going to be and I'm going to live in the States and just very driven uh, I'm not as good as Stevie, I'm not saying that by any stretch of the imagination, but that was my ambition when I was 12. So I think it was more about that, and it did take a good year for me to get good enough where, you know, it started to feel like I had some power over what I was playing, you know, because up until then it's, you know, it's like trying to learn a foreign language. You can say the words, but you don't really feel them, you know. Um, did you take any lessons after those initial lessons that I you I went took? to one with my brother who was having lessons, and when it came my turn, because Steve Ray Vaughan had such a particular technique... I was already playing it better than the teacher who was kind of an Eddie Van Halen nut. And he's like, I can't help you really. This stuff is, you kind of have to teach yourself, I think, you know. How did it make you feel? Were you like thinking, wow, this is really cool that I'm so good? Or wow, I really wanted to learn other things? I think it was more insecure than that. Um, I don't think my big brother helped much (laughs) Um, because he was a bit peed off that I'd started playing as well. And I remember after that lesson... My mom took us to McDonald's and we were sitting in the car park, me and my brother. He said, well, what are you, why are you playing anyway? I said, well, I, I want to be Steve Ray Vaughan. He went, well, good luck. You'll have to practice 14 hours a day. I was like, all right, I will. Um, and I did. <laughs> did you just play all the time? Yeah. And I, I kind of had stopped going to school at that point. And when was that? How old were you at that time? Probably 13, 14. Uh, and, but the teachers were great. You know, I was a quiet kid and I, I didn't mess about when I was there. And I got my homework in on time and... Uh, And they were very encouraging that when I did leave school at 16 that I should take a gap year and, and, you know, see if I can make it work. So I was very lucky in that regard. Both parents and school were supportive. When you're so driven that young, was it difficult to even concentrate on school? I mean, were you distracted a lot by thinking, I just want to have a guitar in my hands and this is in the way of me doing that? Yeah, I was definitely frustrated, I think, more than anything, because I just knew it it was a waste of my time. You know, and I, I hate to say that because I think education is wonderful, you know, and I do have a bit of a chip on my shoulder about leaving school at 15, 16, and, you know, I try and read a lot and, you know, travel's obviously the best way of educating yourself, 
which I'm lucky to be able to do a lot. But I just didn't see the point of me having to get up at seven o'clock in the morning to be somewhere when I could be spending eight hours on this thing that was going to be my career. Um, so I think frustration more than anything. I was so I do remember my last day at school feeling like I'd gotten out of prison. Kids, if you're listening, go to school. <laughs> I didn't want to ask you this question because it's so obvious. As a grown woman with a career behind her and a successful career, but when you were 15 years old and 14 years old and you were playing the blues and you are a young woman, I do have to ask. I do have to ask about that. I am curious. I can't. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I can't help it because I can only imagine. First of all, you say to your brother, I want to be Stevie Ray Vaughan. We know how that went. <laughs> so Not well for Ben. <laughs> not so well. And so now you're telling other people, I guess. Uh, that's what I want to do, and I'm going to be that good. How did that go over? What was the response to that? To be honest, I didn't. I didn't tell anyone at school I play guitar. My two best friends knew. And I don't know if that's... I'm, I'm quite an introvert anyway. No, I told my two best friends, and then I was... Listeners can't hear me, I'm using air quotations. I was sick from school one day, which means I was at home playing guitar. And my mom, who was very proud of me, i just done a little demo CD, and she was at the gym and spotted a local radio... DJ and thrust this demo CD at her, which she listened to and played on the local Birmingham radio station. Uh, and by the time I got back to school, everybody had heard it and they did a special assembly playing my demo in front of all of the kids. And how did your introverted self feel about that? Not good. Not good at all. Uh, less good when half of my teachers turned up. It was I was headlining Ronnie Scott. They had no idea. They called me into the office and I thought I was in trouble. They said, Are you, do you go under Joanne Shaw Taylor? Because Shaw's my middle name. I said, yes. And they said, you play guitar? And I said, kind of. And you playing at Ronnie Scott's on Saturday? And I said, yeah. Uh, I said, oh, can we get tickets? I was like, no. <laughs> um, so about four of them, my PE teacher turned up as well. So yeah, I didn't ever really tell anyone. I don't now if I meet someone, tell them what I do unless they ask. How did your schoolmates start to treat you any differently? Don't really remember looking back. I, yeah, I think it made me a little bit cooler. I think the fact that it'd been a secret, you know, and... Uh, you know, I was doing gigs and I had a band that were all adults. And, you know, by then I was going to Holland on the weekend to do festivals. So I think I became exotic. I was already five foot six, by the way, when I was 13. And, you know, the boys were still, you know, three foot tall. So I was always a bit terrifying to them anyway. So I didn't get much much trouble off anybody. So, yeah, they were, they were definitely a bit cooler after that. Okay, so you are a six, five foot six, accomplished blues guitarist playing gigs best days of my life what what was anybody gonna do with you <laughs> yeah I mean it's um again I just got lucky that my parents were so supportive because they could have said no and the school could have been less supportive but you know it was nice that they saw a kid really uh putting effort into something and decided to encourage it you know when you're as good as you were the increments of getting better get smaller mm. right I mean the the more accomplished you get like when you're learning something, the first two years can be unbelievable. You're learning all this stuff and you can listen to the sure. difference of like with two years and you're like, oh my gosh, I sound mm. incredible. But once you get to a certain level, the getting Plateau. better gets much more minute. Do you still notice yourself getting better at things? Uh, are you really conscious of it? I'm sure you play every yeah. day. Yeah, religiously. To stay, to stay really good. But what about the part about changing your style or getting better or, you know, moving your, your career forward or your playing forward? How does that work when you get to the level that you're at? Um, I think I've learned the routine of it in that, for me, 
Um, there'll be times when you're touring, when it just naturally goes up because you're working so much. You know, you learn more in a, a two-hour gig than you do two hours at home. Um, and then there'll be phrases where I just plateau. Maybe that's from being tired on the road as well. Um, so I find it's important sometimes to just put it down for three months, you know, and rest the hands. Because that's also half the battle at this point is touring. And, you know, it's a very physical thing. And I've got small hands and, you know, you want to avoid... I kind of treat it like I'm an athlete, you know. It's, you know, risk of injury and all that. Um, so I think you get into a routine right now, you know, because of COVID. You know, I, I don't want to say anything positive about this situation we're all in. But it has been nice to, to sit at home and just make a cup of coffee and put on a, a DVD and jam along, you know, without the thought of, oh, I've got a six-week tour coming up that I need to be da-da-da-da-da or play this. or. Um, so it's kind of, you know... it. it you just got to move with it. You got to be conscious of the fact that you do want to be better, but maybe that means taking three months off the guitar and, and working on your songwriting or your vocals, or just resting. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Here's part two in the conclusion of my conversation with Joanne Shaw-Taylor in which she talks about the advice Eurythmics member Dave Stewart gave her and performing for the Queen's Jubilee with Annie Lennox. As we return to the conversation, I share with Joanne Shaw-Taylor some of my observations about her talent. Okay, there's three different things going on with you. Oh, there's so many different things going wrong. (laughs) These are three things that are going right (laughs) that I have identified for you. That you are an incredible player got a great voice and you can sing and you can write not all the time do those three things intersect yeah in a really good way we're talking about three different skill sets here really do you ever think about the fact that you have been able to be really good at all of those things at the same time well I mean thank you I, I don't think I am really good at all those things I think my strength comes from that I'm good at all three but no one, I don't think I'm a good enough singer to just be a singer or a good enough songwriter to just be a songwriter. I try not to laugh at the facial expressions you're making at me. I don't know that you're such a good judge, but you go ahead. <laughs> Continue. Um, well, it never hurts to be humble, if, if, any, if worst case scenario. I, that course for me was very much changed by Dave Stewart. Um, I only wanted to be a guitar player. I had started singing a little bit because that's what blues guitarists did. Were you surprised that you could sing? I, well, I couldn't for the longest time. I was terrible. There's some videos I would send you a link to some on YouTube of me at 18. I'm very British. You, so we could hear your accent when you sang? Yeah. There was a song I used to sing called Same Old Blues, which is a Freddie King song that I love. And it's like, morning rain keeps on falling. But it, back then it was, morning rain keeps on falling. Uh, and then something clicked. But no, it was Dave. I had a conversation with him. and he was Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics. Yeah. yeah. I was living with him, essentially, for a while when I was a teenager. Uh, and we were at his house in Surrey, and he took me for a drive. And he said, bring your three favourite CDs. And I bought Albert Collins, I think, and Stevie, and I think Johnny Lang at the time I was a big fan of. And he listened to them. He said, now that's good. He said, what do you think the most popular guitar solo is in the world? And I just read an interview, an article on it, so I knew it was Hotel California by the Eagles. He said, but it's not because it's the greatest guitar solo in the world. He said, it's very good, but everybody loves it because it's in a song that they've all heard. 
and that they all love. Um, he said, you can write the best guitar solo in the world, but if it's not in a good song, no one's ever going to hear it. And he said, and I think there's just more of a voice in you than just guitar. I think you should keep working on your singing, but I think you should start writing songs. So after that, he used to email me 10 song titles made up, and I'd have to pick three and try and write a verse or a chorus and, and email them back, and I'd get it them graded back to me, little <laughs> notes. So he... He would um, really listen and guide you, it sounds like. Yeah, and so I don't know if without that. I'm really glad he did because, I, you know, I do feel he was right. I think I am an artist. Um, and for, you know, there's still not many females coming through, so it's nice to have a voice and a platform uh, and not just be a guitar player. I think that was the right path for me, not that it's the right path for every female artist out there. But, no, I, I'm very, very thankful for him t- for that. When you're performing... And it's time for you to play a solo and you're just playing and you don't have to think about singing. Is that something that you're like, I, l- I look forward to that? Or it is such a break to not have to think about anything else but playing when you're up there? It's a mixture. Um, I'd, certainly in the early days, the singing used to be the thing that I did in between guitar solos. You know, and it was, you know, it was a necessity more than something I enjoyed. Now the goal is is for it to just to blend into one. I won't lie that, you know, at certain points in the tour, your voice is tired and you're kind of waiting for the guitar solo to come so you can just have a break for a minute of him shouting. Um, but, I mean, the end goal is, there's a Miles Davis quote that I love that is um, learn your instrument inside out and then forget it all and play. And that's the goal is to not be thinking about anything really. Then it's it's just kind of a dance that you do. You know, it's it's in motion and you kind of forget it all and, and just move into it. So yeah, I try not to think about anything really when I'm up there, which is nice. So through meeting Dave Stewart, you met Annie Lennox. Mm. I would die if I met her. Oh, really? Honestly. Oh, yes. I absolutely love her. And through her entire career, just the way she's handled herself, mm. the way, that, you know, how classy she is, how talented, immensely talented she is. Incredibly bright woman as well. Yeah, very, very, um, you know, with such a good heart too. You know, you, you listen to what she says and what she puts out into the world and, you know, she's, yeah. she's pretty perfect actually. She is in, in real life as well. She's, I don't want to say intimidating. The accent as well, because it's just a wee bit Mrs. Doubtfire with the <laughs> Scottish <laughs> lilt. Yeah. Um, you know, and I met her when I was 17, so it was, you know... Or 16, even. I remember her telling me off for ordering a dessert after eating a pizza. <laughs> you know, she, but, you know, it's the most terrifying, subtle telling off I've ever had. It was wonderful. <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, I saw the video of you performing with her. Sorry. <laughs> and, well, with the wings on. So everybody had I... wings on, which I was like, and you had a white suit on. I mean, you did look pretty angelic up there. I I masked it well. Well, I have, you know, how often have we seen an angel playing a guitar like that? I mean, you really kind of occupied a very special <laughs> space there. They didn't tell me about the wings till about five minutes before. Are you serious? No, so we were shoved into this green room uh, that was on the back of the stage, which you were only allowed on if you were either the performance before or well, after. We should tell everybody what, what I'm talking about. I didn't oh, set sorry. this up. This is the Diamond Jubilee. It was the Diamond Jubilee celebration. So the Queen had been Queen for 50 years, I believe, is it? Um I should know this information. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we were performing at Buckingham Palace and the stage was around the Queen Victoria Memorial Fountain that is outside Buckingham Palace. But it, as you can imagine, it's the royalty, so everyone performing was Sir Elton John or Sir Tom Jones or Sir Paul Mc... Lots of sirs and madams and dames. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a lot of people there. Well, the green room we went in and it was... it was it, You had to pinch yourself and realise you're really there because when you see 
certain celebrities in the flesh, particularly ones that are so kind of outrageous, like Elton John, you think it's a, a tribute or, you know, a lookalike. But I was in this green room and it was like Elton John, Paul McCartney, I think Madonna was in there, Sir Tom Jones, Ed Sheeran was in the corner who at the time had just released his first single and he looked at me and I looked at him and I sort of gave a thumbs up because we were just terrified. <laughs> um so, yeah, I was just tuning the guitar and then some nice wardrobe lady just said, oh, can we put the wings on now? I was like, what? <laughs> uh, must we? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that happened. It looked like tens of thousands of people were there. Oh, the, I think there was a million there on the day and I think pretty much the whole of the UK, 60 million watched. That was incredible. How Did Dave Stewart or Annie just call you? How did that whole thing Basically, work that you got the gig? Yeah, Annie was at home one day and she knew she was doing There Must Be an Angel the rhythmic song and she knew she wanted to do a bluesier version of it that her and Dave I think had done on Letterman or something once so I mean I wasn't first choice which I have no problem admitting um, I think Stevie Wonder was the first choice she was going to get him up to do the harmonica solo but he was performing later in the show so they couldn't make the timing work um, and I think she just thought she was talking to her musical director and said oh we should get like a blues guitarist and then she remembered me so literally, he, I got an email off someone saying, uh, Annie Lennox is trying to contact you. And I was back in England waiting on a new US visa. And my mother wasn't well at the time. She'd, she'd got cancer. Um, so I was kind of having a bit of time to spend with her. But was very aware this concert was, you know, it was taking over the UK. It was, you know, mania. So I had an inkling of what it was. And when they phoned and said, Annie would like you to do one song, she's got a gig this weekend. I was like, okay, <laughs> mom, I got a gig. Uh, so yeah, it just was one of those weird things, you know, that she remembered me from, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, whatever it had been by then. When you're performing in front of a crowd like that, is it almost like you're not even thinking about it because it's just... Oh, I was very, you were very thinking about it. <laughs> I was terrified. Were you? Oh, absolutely. I just didn't want to let Annie down. Right. You know, that's the main thing with me. It's not really what my performance says about me, it's whoever else I'm with, you know. Um, but I say my mom wasn't well at the time and she did end up passing away the following I'm sorry. March. Thank you, love. Um, and it, she just had such a spring in her step as soon as she found out I was there. So she got to see you. She did. She watched on the TV. My brother's village was having a village fate for it because obviously the whole of the UK was celebrating this. And my little niece was two and there was a fancy dress thing and they, she'd gone as the queen. <laughs> so I knew they were there and I knew my mum was watching. So I just remember thinking, smile, your mum's watching, don't look nervous. Um, so I, I got through it. But yeah, it was, uh, yeah, just thinking about the fact that the queen was watching me and probably hated it. I don't know if she likes loud guitar, so it's I'm going to guess no. It's hard to know. We're going to assume that she loved it. Yeah, I was thinking Harry's probably my best bet. He's the young <laughs> rock and roller. <laughs> When you are um, in the company of some of these iconic artists, I mean, that we, you know, they're all kind of in our collective consciousness sure. together. Um, do you ever like look around and say, gosh, I, it would be fun to perform with that person or that person or that person? Are there people that you're thinking, you know, during your career you'd love to work with? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I still, I don't know if that's a bit of a daydream though, you know, like when I was a kid and thinking, oh, well, I'll just be Steve Ray Vaughan. That seems like a, a really sensible profession for a 12-year-old girl from Solihull um, to be this cowboy guitar slinger. But I do know that, you know, you have to dream big in order to accomplish those things. Um, 
So there's plenty of people. I mean, obviously we're at Rust Belt Studios right now. Al had Alice Cooper. Something like that would be fun. You know, I love that band, The Hollywood Vampires, that he's in with Joe Perry. Um, I'd love to do more work with Dave. Uh, Pink. You know, there's a lot of females in this industry I, I hugely admire. But, you know, if anybody wants a blues guitarist, let me know. Let me ask you a question about, about guitarists for a second. When guitarists have, like, you'll see, like, it's some people, you know, that you'll look at their studio and there's like all these guitars lined up. There's like 20 of them there. And then I think, well, you're only going to play one at, one at a time. And do most guitarists have their go-to guitar that has been with them forever that they're the most comfortable with? Or is it fun for guitarists to always be picking up guitars and trying new things and so how does that work for you how does it work for guitarists that you know in terms of do you have a go-to guitar how does that work i think it depends on the guitar player uh for me i'm very much i have a main guitar how long have you had it since i was 15 so 20 years it's my first proper guitar i saved up um i got a job in a, a guitar shop on weekends and I was gigging, making a little bit of money. And my grandmother very kindly realised how hard I was working. And she said, look, whatever you earn and save, I'll match. Uh, so I got together about £1,500. Which, you know, a lot of money now, let alone at the time. Mm-hmm. Got a train to London, to Denmark Street, which is where all the vintage cool guitar shops are. I found this 1966. It's an Esquire, Fender Esquire, which is what was the Telecaster before the Telecaster. Um... And it's been my main guitar ever since. And I don't know if that's because I've got smaller hands being female and it just really suits me. Or if it's laziness, because I hate doing guitar changes in a show. Uh, my guitar tech hates me because he has nothing to do for 90 minutes. Um, so you're retuning up there yeah, and just doing it, doing it yeah, as you go part of the show. stop and take a guitar off and put another one on. But then my friend, one of my closest friends, Joe Bonamassa, is a collector and has some like 300 instruments, but very much uses the show to showcase that. And he knows the fans like seeing the guitars. And But I, yeah, a guitar change every song would drive me mad. Maybe that's the difference between men and women, I think, is, you know, we're far more practical sometimes. I always get told a lot, I smile a lot when I'm on stage. Uh, and some people say they love that, particularly women, as opposed to guitar grimaces. But I get asked, like, why do I smile so much on stage? I'm like, why would I not? I'm playing obnoxiously loud guitar, <laughs> screaming. It's like the best therapy in the world. And people are clapping me. It's, my job is to get clapped. I know that's ridiculous to be applauded for a living. It's like, you know, I'm not stuck in an office. It's, it's fantastic up there. That's a tall order to perform night after night at that level as if... You've done it for the first time because for a lot of people, that's the first time they're going to see you. Yeah, which is something I try and remember, actually, when I go on stage is that it could be someone's first time. It could be someone's first gig. You know, you don't want to ruin that for some little kid. Well, then there's that, Um, too. You know, in particular, I'm seeing a lot of younger females, like dads are starting to bring their daughters, you know, because there's not that many females out there playing guitar for them to look up to still. So, you know, that kind of... How does that feel to see these young women out there looking up to you and or being maybe they don't want to be guitar players Mm. but to be able to see a woman up there playing the way you play I absolutely love it um and we do by we I mean me and my TM who've just started a thing with Gibson which we were working on before COVID called Gibson well Joanne Shaw Taylor's Gibson Girls which is a guitar camp just for girls women Uh, because statistically a lot of females are put off learning guitar in those uh, environments because they'll be the only girl um so you know they feel intimidated i'm sure we will let boys in if you know a couple would prefer to come you know we're not uh, saying no to anybody but um has it happened yet no so it was meant to happen october i believe um 
because I was meant to tour the UK again in September, but obviously everything's just, everything's a little crazy right now. Um, so it sounds like you'll do this at some point. And so this will be basically a girls camp and it'll be guitar lessons with you. And it'll, yeah, it sounds in, like it's um, going to be very cool. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. We brought in a guy who I love, have done since I was a kid called Ace, who's in a band called Skunk and Nancy, which is a very well-known rock band in UK, Europe. And he's actually a teacher. Um, so there is a legitimate teacher. They're not just being left with me that has no idea what they're doing. Um, <laughs> but I will be there to kind of help them. And and we'll probably get in some guest artists. You know, we're just trying to get through the first one or two and then... So have you thought about what you're going to say to these young women? No, I probably should have. <laughs> no, you've posed me with the question. <laughs> I feel horrendous. Why don't we just figure that out right now? <laughs> um, I think just encouragement is the main thing. Because one thing I was always lucky at, it never occurred to me that I was a female playing guitar. I always thought I was a novelty. You know, and doors opened quicker for me because I was a young blues guitarist, but I thought that's why it was. I didn't realise, you know, I got to 21 thinking, great, now I'm just going to be taken seriously. And then they dropped 19-year-old blues guitarist and now I'm female blues guitarist. It's like, my name's Joanne. They know what sex I am. You don't have to put that on the poster. Um... So I, my important thing is just focus on being the best guitar player you can. And also, as you know well, being a female and also a male-dominated industry, you have to work twice as hard as a man to be thought half as good. It's always true, and it's going to be true for a long time. Um, so don't, you know, give yourself a free pass because there's a novelty attached to you. So I think that's the most important thing for me. 